Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. We would testify this morning that we serve a faithful God. Amen. Amen and amen. I'll tell you what, we do serve a faithful, faithful God. Well, happy Thanksgiving to everybody here, and I know we're going to have a wonderful service on Wednesday night, and for those of you that are our online family, I love you, and we all love you, and look forward to seeing you uh, soon, hopefully, you'll be here. Uh, someone came by the office this week, and they said, you know, every time you look in that camera, and you tell them to get into church, I know you're talking to me, and I said, you're right, I am, but uh, in her case, they're having some medical problems there, so we understand, but uh, love you, each one, and for those of you that might be uh, joining us, wherever you are, we love you. And look forward to seeing you soon. All right, this morning we're going to continue our Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is our Sermon on the Mount. I'm up here on my little mountain and I'm going to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Message number five in our series. We're going to go over the seventh and the eighth, uh, what's known as the Beatitudes. Attitudes that ought to be in every real believer. Happy are those people who have peace with God. And help others find that same peace. Happy are those that suffer for doing right in the cause of Christ. The pursuit of happiness. That's what Jesus started with on that Galilean hillside 2,000 years ago. He started real strong, bold, not a lot of chatty talk. He just stood up and said, how many would you like to be happy? Let me give you eight things that you need to do. And boom, 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 he laid them out there. I mean, each one's a sermon in themselves. But he just dropped them on them and let them uh, deal with it. Happy are those people who have peace. Happy are those people, then, who suffer for the cause of Christ. The pursuit of happiness. It dominates our existence. 200 years ago, over 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson and the framers of the Constitution of our great nation said that the pursuit of happiness is an essential right. Two centuries later, we asked the question, is America happy this morning? What is happiness? Psychologists tell us, well, it's elation, it's satisfaction, it's peace of mind. Science actually has two terms for happiness. One's called psychological well-being, or PWB, and that's how the mind perceives how things are happening. And then there is subjective well-being, or SWB, and that's how things are actually happening. How can we become happier? Well, most psychologists says that the pursuit of happiness lies in three areas, and they have what they call the happiness pie, and it's in three different slices. Slice uh, number one is our genetic makeup, meaning uh, just our inbuilt uh, genes, our code, that our family style. You know, these are things that maybe you can't do a whole lot about. Second one is our environment. Uh, if you live in a war zone, it might be pretty hard to be too happy. But um, so those are not a lot we can do about. And then there are our actions or our life skills and. Those things actually might affect our happiness. For example, you might get a big charge out of having some chocolate. And I do, I love chocolate. I love a dark chocolate and let's say double shot espresso. And man, I'm just happy for 30 minutes, but <laughs> I'm certainly happy. And uh, some people get a real jazz out of doing exercise. I, I get jazz out of not doing exercise, but uh, no, I certainly enjoy exercise. But, some folks uh, find happiness temporarily by taking an antidepressant. It actually does something to their body and they actually feel elation or feel contentment or whatever. Some folks maybe go to have coffee with a friend, but uh, this pie chart supposedly is what makes people happy. The question I ask though is if it's such a science and if 
these three things are actually what makes people happy, then it would seem like they have it all down, everybody should be happy, right? But the fact is, they may get a pretty close to what's going on, but the fact is, they don't have any lasting answer. Because, first of all, the happiness pie, number one, doesn't work long term. Second of all, it doesn't work in every situation. But Jesus gave truths that work long term, and they always work, no matter who uses them, no matter when they use them. The happiness pie is a band-aid because it only touches the surface. But Jesus gave things that get down to the very cause, the root cause. 2,000 years ago, Jesus looked at those people there and he said, you can be happy. Now, I'm sure some of them thought, well, really? There were farmers, mostly farmers and related businesses. There were clerics, there were politicians, and they had heard all the claims. In fact, I'm sure they had heard from people spouting what Socrates and his disciple Aristotle and others said. Here's what Socrates said. They would have known this. He said, if you gain control over your desires, rational control over your desires, that will produce a divine-like state, an inner tranquility on the, no matter what happens on the outside, it won't affect it. Well, sounds all well and good. I think he probably uh, was smoking marijuana or something when he said that, but uh, the fact is, uh, that sounds all good, but folks, uh, that inner tranquility doesn't always work, especially when you're stuck in a Starbucks drive through for 10 minutes, you can't get out, so you can pay $5 for a cup of coffee, and then you get up to the window only to find that they ran out, and a perky little lady says, we don't have any coffee, but how would you like a kale latte? <laughs> but anyway, no, I'm not happy right now. I'm sorry, my happiness pie is having some trouble. I'm missing that slice right now. No, Socrates doesn't help me. My happiness pie doesn't help me. But there are eight amazing principles that do help. And those are the things we're going to be talking about. We're going to summarize them, and then uh, we'll finish those today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the blessed privilege of being happy. Lord, no matter our circumstances, there's a bottom line joy that fills our spirit. Now, I pray that each one of us might find that joy this morning that you promised in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the eight principles of happiness? Number one, we must realize our spiritual poverty. You have to realize just how needy we really are. Once you realize how much you need God, you're in a good step towards making a difference. Number two... You have to mourn. God said happiness comes from mourning, not mourning being the beginning of the daytime, but in the sense of sadness. God says you've got to clear the air with him, and then we can move forward. Unless we repent, get our accounts clear, then you can move forward. Then, number three, happiness comes to those that humble themselves. Those who become meek, as the Bible word is, and we found out that doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean uh, some kind of a, you know, a, a sissy kind of a weakness. No, uh, it is strength under control. And then number four, God says happiness comes when we develop a hunger for right things. Uh, do you find yourself with a hunger to get into the Bible, a hunger to pray, a hunger to go serve the Lord? Uh, those kind of things actually when you do them, they actually create satisfaction and happiness. And then last week, we found out that the greatest, one of the greatest steps of happiness is displaying mercy. Again, it's not this wishy-washy kind of softness, uh, a disregard for the justice of God. No, it is a concern for people, a spiritual concern, which shows up mainly in a concern for their souls. That's the greatest act of mercy is to tell someone about the Lord or invite them or pray for them. And then number six, to live in pursuit of pure things. Pure things, things that are found in Scripture. Those are the things that God says will bring us happiness. 
not impure things. If you were to ask a lot of people in the world what would make you happy, get some man or some woman, it might be some impure things, but not for a Christian. Pure things make you uh, just have this joy in your spirit. Now today, we're going to find out that the Bible says happy are the peacemakers. Again, this has been so misunderstood over the years. And so let's get right into this verse here. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9. We're going to see what the explanation of this verse. And let's read it together, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9. Let's read it out loud. All right, ready? Begin. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What is peacemaking? Well, you can write this down. It is simply having a harmonious relationship with God and with others. It is uh, derived from a Greek verb, which means to bind something or to join something together that is broken, to put it back together. Strangely, really, but when you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. In the classical Greek, meaning more kind of the everyday Greek, they, the idea of peacemaking was connected with strength. In fact, it was connected with force. You force something together, you bring it together, and thereby you bring peace to it. For example, a ruler who would come into an area and would begin to uh, put some, uh, some uh, laws out there, and bring people together, or would make sure that everybody uh, abides by things, would be uh, called a peacemaker. That was the original language. Strange how those kind of thoughts even carried over for many years. In 1873, for example, the U.S. Army ordered 36,000 handguns. It was a revolutionary moment in American U.S. history. It was a 45 caliber single action pistol. It was then soon released to the general public. A strange thing happened, really not that strange actually. As soon as they released it to the public, it had already been in the uh, Army's hands, crime and war aggression profoundly declined. It was a huge deterrent to all the craziness that was going on. In fact, it was so amazing, they ended up calling the gun the peacemaker. This gun, the 36 uh, uh, Colt, I think it is, it is a, uh, called the peacemaker. Isn't that strange how that a weapon is called a peacemaker? That actually is pretty close to what the Bible is saying here. And that is that Bible peace is strength. It is bringing people to in line with Scripture. It is forcing yourself to line up with the truth of Scripture. In that case, you find yourself harmonious. In other words, everything kind of works together. It all kind of fits together that you have a life of harmony. And that's why the Bible says, for example, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness. In other words, you cannot divorce peace from holiness and righteousness and doing right. It doesn't work. Now, there are many calls today for people to, for example, just follow your heart. You'll go to a movie or you'll uh, see some uh, slogan on a wall somewhere or maybe you pick up a cup or a blog or a meme and they'll say something like, trust yourself or follow your instincts or your heart will never lead you astray. The problem with all of those statements, none of them are biblically supportable, not even one. In fact, it is very possible to follow your heart and to go straight to hell when you die if you don't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because our heart will deceive us. True peace doesn't come from your gut. It comes from God. And that's what God is saying here, that uh, being a peacemaker. Now, peace is a God thing. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in verse number 33 when he was speaking about kind of some of the problems that were going on in the church. He said, folks, we need to kind of get this thing in order 
And he said, because God is not the author of confusion. But sometimes we forget what the other part is. It says God is the author of peace. He is the author of peace. Can't have peace without the author, peace. Ever since Adam and Eve chose the devil over God, God, the author of peace, has extended the olive branch to mankind. In Christ, God holds out the olive branch of peace to a world. And if you want peace, you have to take that olive branch from God. He is the author of peace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will have peace. That's what God's saying here. So the explanation then of peace is that it is a binding together. It is bringing us to bear with scripture. It is strength. It is uh, righteousness. It is peacemaking. The explanation. Now the examination. There is so much misunderstanding of what genuine peace is today. Now, uh, I grew up, at least part of my years, were in the uh, crazy 60s. Now, back in the 1960s, there was a symbol that came out known as the peace symbol. And it still is uh, used. You see it all over today. Now, supposedly, it was a symbol. It was an N and a D. I never could see it. But it was an N and a D standing for nuclear disarmament. To me, uh, as a Christian, it always appeared to me to be an upside down broken cross. And so I've never uh, used it, I've never drawn it, I don't mess with it, it just doesn't seem right to me, I will tell you. But I will tell you this, regardless, peace is not a symbol, it's not a sign, it's not a political plank. Real peace is from God. And in that regard, it is not a truce. If you're taking your outline down here, it is not a truce. There's a big difference between truce and peace. Truce, for example, says lay down your weapons, lay down your guns, and uh, uh, sometimes that works for a while. One wise guy got it about right, however. He said, world peace, that's that glorious moment when the nations pause to reload. <laughs> And that's exactly what it seems like world peace often is. No, it's not a truce. Paul said in the days before our Lord Jesus returns, he said it's going to be marked by people who are self-deceived about peace. In fact, they're going to be touting. There's peace everywhere. Look what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse number 3. In those days when they shall say, peace and safety, peace, there's peace. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, you're not in that kind of darkness, are you? You don't believe that kind of concept. And everybody's walking around, gloating, congratulating one another. Peace, we finally have peace because we control the house, or we control the Senate or because so-and-so is president or whatever, folks. It doesn't really make a difference, any of that, because peace is by God. It's not a truce. It's not a political platform. It is always by God. It is not only not a truce, but peace is not pacifism. We have a lot of pacifists today who feel like that somehow that's what peace is. Folks, the Bible is a misinterpretation of the Bible. Pacifism is the idea of wanting harmony or peace at any cost. But that's not the Bible truth. Jesus never said, blessed are the pacifists. He said, in fact, he said, that's, a, that's the wrong kind of peace. He had to really explain this to disciples once. They were kind of misunderstanding. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse number 12. Dr. Luke, the wonderful apostle, clarified the matter for us. He quoted our Lord's response. The disciples were like, what's going on? You mean you're, you're causing so much division. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, and these verses always surprise people. He said, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on the earth? You really think that I'm here to give peace on the earth? Now, you'd say, wait a second. Doesn't it say at Christmas time, peace, goodwill? Yes, that is true. But that only happens, man 
in the world only has peace as they yield to God. They can't just have peace any other way. He said, I tell you, nay, but division. In fact, if you read the rest of this passage, verse 52, for henceforth there shall be five and one house divided, three against two and two against three. He goes on to the next verse. We won't read it, but he goes on to even explain. He, he said mother-in-laws and father-in-laws and moms and dads and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters. He said they're all going to be at odds with each other. And he said, I'm actually good with that. Now, not good that there's a division because he desires that everybody bring themselves into uh, the truth of Scripture. But if someone won't yield to Scripture, there can be no peace. Now, we might be able to live together. We might be able to have cooperate in certain things. But as far as peace, it can't happen. Peace is not pacifism. Peace is not just giving in. Jesus said to these disciples, if you want peace, it comes through the gospel. And the gospel is divisive. People either accept it or they don't. He said, that's the way it has always been and that's the way it will always be. Folks, read the book of Genesis, read the book of Revelation. There are people who accept it and there are people who don't. Even in the last days, here we'll be looking into the book of Revelation soon and in the, in the month of January for a few weeks. And, oh my, I mean, you just look at that and you think, why in the world would you not submit to God? Well, because the gospel, by way of what it is, it says you must come to, in line with Scripture to have peace because I'm not moving. I'm not changing from what Scripture says. If you want peace, line up with the Bible. Then we're good. If you don't want to line up with Scripture, then there can be no peace. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, gentlemen, when you go out there, you give them the gospel. It will change their lives if they will submit and humble themselves. You can't have peace by saying, well, we'll all just agree to kind of have our own beliefs. That doesn't work that way. That's not peace. You see these bumper stickers? I saw one the other day. I've seen it for several years. It says coexist. And it has all the different symbols of the different religions, you know. Folks, that's not peace. And that's not what God said. No, God wants us to come in line with scripture. Then we can have peace. The explanation, the examination, and now the glorious exhortation. Look what God says. I will bless you. Remember now that word means a unique favor of God, not just a nice thing that happens. It is a definitely a favor from God. God says you will just you will just have this glorious thing happen to you. What is it? You'll be called the children of God. You'll be called the children of God. Man, that's an incredible thought there. God said you will really resemble God when you're a peacemaker, a true peacemaker. He didn't say you'll be up for the Nobel Peace Prize. He didn't say you'll make sure they'll put you there in the United Nations. In fact, the fact of the matter is even the world's best peacemakers have a terrible success record. Today in America, despite generation of generation of people trying to have peace, we don't have peace. We don't have peace politically and we don't have peace economically and we don't have peace socially. There is not, in fact, there is not a place on the planet where there are humans where there's peace. It not even one. I mean, Every nation on the face of the earth where there's people, there's not peace. Because until people bring themselves into line with God, receive the gospel, submit, humble themselves, repent to God, then they can have peace. Other than that, we'll never have peace. Peace is about strength. Peacemaker is a, is a strong uh, uh, weapon. And that's what God is saying here. True peace brings people to bear for scripture. And then he said, they will be called the children of God. Now, Greek scholars, of which I'm not, I certainly use all the helps I can, but Greek scholars tell us that that is a very unique phrase there. It is meaning somebody uh, who has like dignity. It's someone who has a very unique quality, somebody who has a cut above. You'd say, oh, that, well, I'll tell you what, that's just, 
top of the line. You know, you'd say that's top drawer. You know, that's five star. That's kind of what the word is kind of like saying. It says you are one who resembles God. You resemble God. Now, with all of these children around and grandchildren, you can sure see how they resemble their parents. And uh, we have two little twin baby girls there. And, uh, glory and hallelujah. They're almost three now, I think. And I just have always loved looking at them. And I still have a real hard time telling which one is glory, which one's hallelujah. But I love them both. And, uh, but I tell you, what, when they're looking at me with those little blue eyes, I look like, oh my goodness, there's like a, you know, am I seeing double? But uh, they're just beautiful. But you know, uh, we often resemble. And people say, oh, you know, an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or boy, the gene pool is strong in that one. And, or that's a little mini-me right there. And you know what? It is true. These, uh, these genes, uh, we take after who we're like. And God said, we can be like God. We can be just like God. We, we resemble who we're like. One night, a wife found her husband standing over their newborn son's crib. Silently, she watched him. He stood there looking down at the sleeping infant. There she saw on his face a mixture of emotions, disbelief, doubt, delight, amazement, enchantment, skepticism. He would stand back, shake his head and say, amazing, while smiling from ear to ear. Touched by his unusual display of the deep emotions that it must have aroused inside of him, her eyes glistened as she slipped her arms around him. A penny for your thoughts, she whispered in his ear. He said, isn't it amazing? When you take the time and really look close, how can anybody make a crib like that for $45.99? Yep. Yes, our children sometimes resemble us. And cribs are amazing too, for sure. The fact of the matter is, we look at things in our life and we say, boy, that just resembles that. I'm thankful that I can say, boy, I would love to be able to say, I resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, how do I know if I'm a peacemaker, a concern for souls, a concern to invite people and pray? I love that wonderful passage in Acts chapter 10. Peter was preaching in the early days of the church and an absolutely beautiful statement. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 10, the word which the God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace, <laughs> preaching peace. Did he say, hey, everybody lay down your weapons? No, he said, peace comes through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Now, I guess you could say, from what we're gonna hear next, when you're a peacemaker, you will both make peace and unfortunately, strangely, you will make trouble. Isn't it the strangest thing about biblical peacemaking? You actually don't make this kind of uh, uh, pacifism, no. You have a, a wonderful bringing people into scripture. And so let's finish strong here on number eight. Happy are those that suffer for doing right in the cause of Christ. As I mentioned when we first started on the Beatitudes, Warren Wiersbe, the great Bible teacher, said actually these all seem to go one after another. And so it's interesting how that eight in, in biblical numerology, uh, eight is actually the number for the resurrection on the eighth day. Uh, there was new life. And, um, the, uh, so this, this, there's a new thing that's about ready to happen here. When we suffer for Christ, it's going to be powerful. Now let's read verses 10, 11, and 12 together. All right, ready? Begin. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Here Jesus is giving them some warning up front. He's giving them a heads up. 
You know, being a salesperson is not an easy job. People often spend huge, that are in sales, spend huge amount of time and energy just to get a person to say yes or a company to say yes, only to have the sale cancel later. Buyer remorse is very common, especially in this day and age, and it's even more common when it's a higher priced item. I was reading, experts say one of the things that helps uh, curb that and instill confidence in a buyer is strangely, if you will let a person know some of the faults with the problem, some of the faults with the product, you actually secure the sale, strange. They said, if you will let people read reviews, even bad reviews, they know what they're getting. It actually helps secure the sale, kind of strange. I was thinking about that, how that in the light of this, Jesus was telling these folks, you wanna be happy? Yes, all right. He laid, numbers them off, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You wanna be happy? Yes. He said, now, let me just give you a warning. If you do everything I just said, people are gonna hate you. What? I thought you told us this is gonna make us happy. It is, but it's not what you think. And so he gives a warning. He said, read the reviews, know what to expect. And then he said, I think it'll help you. And he didn't want them bailing on the things of God. And so he gives an explanation. Look at verse 10. He said, blessed are they. Then in verse 11, blessed are ye. Just personalizing what verse 10 said. Some have wondered why God said this is the only one of the Beatitudes where God said blessed twice. Well, that's because some have thought is because there is a double blessing for those who suffer for the cause of Christ. And yet nobody wants to suffer. I don't know that anybody wants to suffer, but the fact is when you serve the Lord and you live a biblical life, you are going to be attacked simply because you're a believer. Strange, really. The world's opposition to Christianity is not based in any fact. Nobody is more loving, more caring, more helpful than Christians. They are the most amazing group on the face of the earth. But just as Paul said, when he referenced Israel's persecution, he said it doesn't make any difference. No matter how loving and kind you are, if you love Jesus, you're gonna be hated. Look what he said in Galatians chapter four. Galatians four, verse 29. Paul said, but as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. He was talking about Jacob and Esau. Now here he is saying, look, I'm telling you, he said, people that are in the flesh, they hate people who have the spirit in them. That's nothing's changed. He said, nothing has changed for thousands of years. And we could say the same thing. Paul, you're right. It hasn't changed for the 2000 years since you wrote that. The flesh, the world always persecutes people that are born of the spirit. Get used to it. A Christian man took a new job. He was around some nasty, some vile group of men. He kind of was fearful even what they might do if they knew he was a Christian. He came home after his first day of work and his wife looked at him and said, well, how was it? How'd you get along? He said, well, actually, it was actually a real good day. It was terrific. Not even one of them found out I was a Christian. <laughs> and you know what? The fact is you will get along terrifically if you never let anybody know you're a Christian. If you just join right in with everybody, go out drinking with them, go out cussing and doing all the things, you know, bar hopping and all that. I mean, fine, nobody ever knows you're a Christian. You'll just have a great time in life. But a heads up, folks, if you live that way and you never talk about God, you never give folks about the truth about Jesus Christ, then that's called being ashamed of God. And let me show you what Jesus said about that. Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Luke chapter nine. Just a warning, just a heads up for all of us here. This is a sobering verse. Jesus lovingly but firmly said, for whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. And when he shall come in his own glory and in his father's and that of the holy angels. 
Now, I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want God to be ashamed of me. I want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There's a well-known pastor, Dr. Stephen Olford. He's a brilliant pulpit orator. He was pastor of the renowned Calvary Baptist Church of New York City. He had the wonderful privilege of leading his brother to the Lord. His brother had been an agnostic most of his life, really didn't ever think much about God. One day, Dr. Olford was called to come to the hospital quickly because his brother wasn't doing well and was very troubled. He went into the room there and tried to reassure his brother. He said, Richard, look, I was there. I want you to know you're saved. You ask Jesus into your heart. You're going to heaven when you die. You don't have to be afraid. Richard looked at his brother, Dr. Stephen Olford. He said, oh, Stephen, you don't understand. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm not afraid to die. I'm ashamed to die for all the selfishness that I have done in my life. Ashamed because I didn't stand for God, because I didn't give God his glory. Oh, to God that that would not be us. Explanation. Now, number two, examination. If that happens in our life, if we stand for the Lord and serve the Lord, we can expect to be opposed three distinct ways. First of all, you can expect to be persecuted. Persecuted. Well, that word is pursued, chased, harassed. (laughs) Harassed. Happy are the harassed. There you go. Write it down. Oh, my. But Jesus reassured us that if you do that, and if you're free from the fear of man, it will be an awesome point in your life. Look what he challenged them in Luke chapter 12. He said, Think about it this way, folks. He said, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. Never be afraid of what people say, of what people think, or what people throw out your way. Don't be afraid of them because that's all they have is their words, their little things they do, their little actions. But he said, after that, they have no more than they can do, meaning they can't They can kill the body, but they can't take away your soul from heaven. The fact of the matter is, you just get there a little quicker if they persecute you. This world's power is limited. Tertullian, one of the great early church fathers, declared, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. For the seed of the church is the blood of Christians. Every single drop of our blood springs up. Some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. Yes, you can do all you want, but you can only kill the body. What's the worst you can do? Kill me? Man, that's a, that'd be a pleasure. Hallelujah for an early exit. I get to go to heaven. First, God says persecuted. Second, if you stand for the Lord, you're going to be reviled. It's an interesting word there, that word reviled. It means to cast your teeth. When you abuse somebody with your words to mock them, to throw things in their face, the same phrase is used in Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, about the crucifixion of our Lord. Here, one of the thieves, now there are two thieves, one on either side, one, as you remember, prayed that powerful prayer, the sinner's prayer was humble, but the other thief, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. There's that same Greek phrase, just translated different. It means someone who just is so cruel, so evil, so hateful that they just revile other people. And folks, there are just people who just can't stop but just saying nasty, evil things. And as it did with the thief on the cross, here he is minutes from death and he just had to say something nasty to Jesus. You would think in a moment like that, he he would have... Done, he would have done what the other thief had done. But he know, in his dying breath, he wanted to say something bad. That's reviling. God said you can be persecuted. You can expect to be reviled. And thirdly, he said they're going to say all manner of evil against you falsely. Now, I think this is the hardest to take. Now, it's one thing to 
oppose somebody. It's one thing to disagree with somebody, but to purposely, when someone purposely tries to subvert you, tries to undermine your authority or, you know, get you fired or say bad things about you on media. I mean, it's one thing to just, you know, kind of a live and let live, whatever, you know, I mean, that's his opinion. But to actually try to bring somebody down, folks, that is just satanic. I mean, it is absolutely satanic. That's what they did to Jesus. Nobody was more pure than Jesus, and yet they said, he's an illegitimate child. Nobody was more brilliant, and yet they said, he's uneducated. Nobody had more power in life, but they said, he's just a poor carpenter's son. They just kept criticizing him, why they need to say all that. And I will tell you folks, I, over all these years, I've been so privileged to be loved by family, loved ones growing up, and loved by so many people. And, uh, but I know you might find this hard to believe, but since I'm so lovable especially, but uh, the fact is there are some people that absolutely despise me. We get emails uh, periodically, sometimes other contact through our social media. And, oh my goodness, I mean, they just go off. And, and you just read that, you think, what in the world? What, what, uh, what is so, got these people so upset. And sometimes it's even folks over the years, sometimes even inside the church, it's crazy. I told somebody once, I said, you know, I don't say somebody can get in so much trouble as I can get into. I'm sitting in my office, studying my Bible, I'm praying, I'm trying to serve the Lord, we're trying to make decisions, and I mean, we can get in, I can get in so much trouble just sitting there. And uh, someone said, uh, came by my office the other day, said, staying out of trouble? I said, no. <laughs> and uh, no, because when you serve the Lord, I mean, it's amazing. It's just, we get them periodically. But folks, I'm telling you, that's just part of a part and parcel, what it means to be someone who just follows scripture. God said, you're going to be persecuted and reviled and all manner of false things said about you. Just get, it's coming. If it hasn't come your way, it's going to come. Now, verse 11, notice what happens. For my sake. Why do they hate? Because of what you represent. Christ in you. Why did they kill Andrew, the disciple, fastening cords to him so that to a cross so that he might die slower because he was a disciple of Christ. Why did they take Peter after nine months in prison and then crucify him upside down because he was a disciple of Christ? Why was Paul beheaded by the emperor Nero because he was a disciple of Christ? Why did they take John and exile him to the Isle of Patmos and boil him in oil? Why did they do that? Because he was a disciple of Christ. Every one of the disciples, other than old Judas, who took his own life, every one of them suffered for Jesus. Everyone. Folks, I'm telling you, just read the reviews. This is a, this is a time to figure out, are you on his side or not? Are you going to be ashamed or not? Explanation, examination. Now here is the exhortation. The exhortation is, there are two wonderful perks God pays the way. And I know the minimum wage is up, and I hope everybody's happy, but I'll tell you what, Jesus has a whole lot better than minimum wage. Notice what it says. First of all, the fruit of it is forever. Verse number 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, look, you serve me, and I'll bless you. You have the kingdom now notice, it says, for theirs is the kingdom. That's present tense. Now, we possess a future kingdom, but we also have the kingdom right now. In fact, that's exactly what Mark said in chapter 10, verse 30. He said, he shall receive a hundredfold now. What? Yes, God said, in this time. Yes, people say, you know, serving the Lord, your pay is out of this world. It is. You know, we, our volunteers around here, we don't pay them much. In fact, zero. <laughs> and uh, I told one of the volunteers, I said, you keep doing this good and I'm going to double your pay. And, uh, but the fact is, sometimes we tell them your pay is out of this world. It is. Because <laughs> we don't pay them. Your pay is out of the world. 
But I'll tell you one thing. God says, actually, serving him, you do get paid. Not only out of this world, but this world. A hundredfold. He said, houses. He said, you serve me, and I'm just going to make things happen for you in your houses. And uh, your lands, brethren, sisters, mothers, children with persecution. And, of course, in the world to come, eternal life. Yes, of course you're going to have eternal life. Of course you're going to have blessings eternally. But he said, the truth of the matter is, serving God pays right now. It pays right here. You have peace, you have joy, there's hope, there's fulfillment. It's just so great. The fruit of it is not only forever, but it's right now. And then, second of all, not only the fruit of it is forever, but the fun of it is fulfilling. God said, strangely... You're going to be, you're going to find yourself just overwhelmed with joy with the privilege of suffering for Christ. Look what it says in verse 12. Rejoice. Rejoice. <laughs> now, it's an interesting word, that word rejoice. It actually is just kind of a bottom line uh, joy, kind of, a, kind of a baseline. I know I went, had, had to have my blood pressure checked not long ago. I kind of going through some of that little stomach stuff. And uh, they said, uh, now your blood pressure seems a little high. They said, uh, what is your baseline? I said, I don't know what my baseline is. I used to play tennis, you know, but, uh, but anyway, um, that's a baseline in the back there. But anyway, um, what is your baseline? I said, I, I was not an idea what my blood pressure normally is. I've taken it for years. And, uh, but if you have a baseline, then they can tell if you're higher or lower than what you normally are baseline that there is a default god says when you suffer for christ you're going to find this your baseline in this case rising i mean your joy level is just going to rise until you're not going to dip down to those deep depressions like you have in the past because you're going to find this a bottom line base of a basement of where your joy is it's just going to be so amazing for you he said you're going to find this uh, settled joy that's kind of what the body is there rejoicing but then he said not only rejoice he said not only just um, have this baseline of joy he then said now he said be exceeding glad <laughs> be exceeding glad actually the actual little translation is jump for joy. Just start clapping your hands, jumping around, going crazy, so excited you just won the lotto or whatever, you know. I know you don't gamble, but I mean, uh, well, I, anyway. Um, but uh, I, I am so excited, I'm so happy. It is just uh, thrilling to serve God. Someone has well said of the Christian life, faith makes a Christian. Life proves a Christian. Trials conform and confirm a Christian. And hallelujah, death crowns a Christian. Another person said the Christian life doesn't get easier. It gets better. One Bible teacher had this divine equation based on this verse. Number one, I am righteous. Number two, the world persecutes me. Number three, then God blesses me. Number four, then I rejoice. That's the divine equation. I live right. The world persecutes me. God blesses me. I get joy. <laughs> and that, he said, that's the, that's the way it works. And then, in turn, I do more right. In more turn, I get more persecuted by the world. Then I get more joy. Why is it fun? Why is it fulfilling? Why is there a great reward? God said two reasons. Number one, reason number one, there's a great reward in heaven. There is a great reward in heaven. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 6. We'll talk about that later. Treasures. That sounds pretty good to me. Treasure hunt. Treasures. There's treasures laid up for you. A reward far exceeding any services rendered. God says when you serve him, there are treasures for you. But there's a second reason why you can rejoice and be so happy for serving the Lord. And that is because they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Persecution is a verification card that you're in the right crowd. You know, nowadays they want people to have all these vaccination cards and you have driver's licenses and you have passports and there's all kinds of documents that everybody has anymore nowadays. Well, God said, you want a passport? Do you want a driver's license? you want a social security card? you want your birth certificate? Whatever you want. If you want to know that you're a Christian, he said, if you are attacked by the world, if you are attacked by sinful people, you can pretty much know you're in the right company. Because in that regard, it says, you are just like those who have suffered for Jesus. You're like that great list. You're like Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah, who they throw in that pit, and Daniel. The fact of the matter is, when you serve God, the Bible says you're going to suffer. Our rightness intimidates the world. Our refusal to be silenced infuriates the world. And our love for God mystifies the world. Live for God. Put these eight attitudes into your life. And then buckle up. If you've ever been on an airplane, you know the flight attendants has come and said something like this. You hear the little bell, and the pilot said, fasten your seatbelts. There's turbulence ahead. Well, I want you to know, if you'll serve the Lord, our pilot has told us, you better buckle your seatbelts because there's turbulence ahead. But if that's the case, then like the great Isaac Watts, the hymn writer said, and with this I close, am I a soldier of the cross? A follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried disguised on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I will bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. This morning, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to line up with Scripture. My purpose is to be a, not only have peace, but to make peace in this world. And I know that puts me right square in harm's way. Would you join me? Let's all stand together. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at the Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.